Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is December 2nd, 2016. My name is Mayanna Dellinger, and I'm a professor of law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. Today, I have the distinct honor and pleasure of interviewing Dr. Falk Schmidt of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, IASS, in Potsdam, Germany. Dr. Schmidt studied philosophy, business, and law at the Free University in Berlin. He got his doctoral degree in political sciences, focusing on global freshwater governance. In the past 15 years, he's been working both in academia and the public sector, in Germany and with the United Nations. He joined the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in 2010 and is currently the leader of an initiative that brings together science, policy and society for the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals in and by Germany. So welcome, Dr. Schmidt. Welcome. My pleasure being with you today. One of the problems that many people around the world consider to be the most serious in relation to climate change is uh, water supply and purity. The American Southwest, for, in for instance, is suffering greatly from one of the worst droughts ever recorded. Prolonged droughts are also a problem in Australia and the Middle East and elsewhere. In your opinion, how could water be better distributed from water-rich to water-poor regions? And um, is this even feasible financially, technically, politically, and so forth? Maybe to start with the good news, uh, the water crisis today is largely a governance crisis. And this means that uh, the physical availability of water is in some areas more challenging than others. We have very dry region, naturally dry regions, arid regions, and of course we have wetter regions or very wet regions. And we have regions where it's a huge demand and we have regions where the demand from different sectors, including private households, but agriculture, industry, is very high on the side. And I think the first thing before one comes to large-scale uh, transportation of fresh water as a possible solution one should have a good understanding of a given region, its special circumstances, and then to see what could be done to manage the water more wisely. In very general terms, so far, it is no business and it's also practically not feasible to talk about large-scale water transports. There are some projects in some areas of um, of the world uh, where this water is distributed by, by channels, that means on land. There are tiny examples um, where water is transported to small islands by ships, but only because these small islands, uh, for example, in the Mediterranean uh, Sea in Europe, because such islands are quite profitable from, from the tourist uh, industry, and there's um, a need and maybe an ability to pay for these extremely cost-intensive uh, solutions. But before one goes to something like this, I think there are many other ways to handle water more wisely. And this is where we should start. And what might some of those ways be? <clears throat> well, of course... Um, it is an issue on the quantity side um, to be aware uh, which um, consumers 
use the water most and which consumption of water in a given region, like in very dry region, is maybe less appropriate or simply inappropriate. And if you take the um, most uh, uh, important sector, agriculture, which uses uh, globally 70% of water and in dry regions 90% and more, because so much water is evaporating, going as <clears throat> first soil moisture, moisture, then through the plants um, up in the air, or in many regions just directly from soil into the air again without giving its service by helping the plants to grow. And this is an area where, for example, additional investments in wiser irrigation systems can have a lot to do much more with the water, as the saying goes, to raise more crop per drop. And it's often an investment, an massive investment, but I would say it pays off, for example, to also maintain some sort of agriculture in even quite challenging, uh, water-wise challenging regions. And of course, there might be <clears throat> regions where some crops which are heavily dependent on water, which are extremely water-intense, uh, like uh, rice, um, but uh, also other ways of wheat production and the like that might uh, be inappropriate and uh, as a federal state, for example, one could consider to have a strategy to change the crops that are grown in the area and even as a wider uh, approach to also change the um, the economic sector that uh, it may fit a little better to the given water requirements. I often say that water doesn't rule the world. That means the availability of water so far was very seldom, if at all, a relevant factor for uh, a given industry to go out or to stay in uh, a business. But since water is life, no water, no life, um, <clears throat> there might be rather soon uh, decisions to be taken that also take this factor into account. And then I would say climate change comes in on top of this because um, when we already use water in a very inefficient and not wise manner, we build up a big problem. And if climate change uh, does not alter the global water cycle quantity-wise, but alters heavily regional effects on seasonal changes, on distributions, uh, heat waves, extended droughts, and all this. If you're already in a water-stressed area, like, for example, um, the southwest and many western parts of the U.S. and some others, then <clears throat> this will indeed become a limiting factor for life and for industry. And uh, that's interesting. You mentioned uh, California, for example, uh, where there's a lot of agriculture uh, that accounts for billions of dollars, uh, but yet though still makes only you know a relatively small percent of the California economy. Uh, there you have this interesting dichotomy where uh, Governor Brown is requiring water uses to be reduced by 25%, but putting that burden on private consumers rather than agriculture or industry. Uh, yet at the same time, you know, a lot of efficiencies could be uh, gained, as you said yourself, from agricultural use. 
So is it just what is it a political issue, do you think? And does it even make sense in the future to continue to have as much agriculture in areas like California, where uh, with temperatures rising, it might just not make sense anymore? Mm. Well, first of all, I would say any attempt to save water or to have a wiser handling of water is relevant and most welcome. And so if you um, either have price incentives, regulation and education on the private households where people live, where people have their immediate interaction with water by cooking, washing, um, <clears throat> the wider sense where you use water in the household that goes beyond what's often called the basic needs. And we can debate if a basic need a person a day is globally 50 liters a day or if it should be 100 liters a day in many areas of this world including the US the average consumption goes up to 500 liters a day and sometimes even uh, above so if the people get uh, an different understanding that this is a resource that's not just given especially not at a high quality at a drinking water quality and that we can start thinking about it, um, reconsidering our way, I would say this is already a very, very important step. And hopefully this, uh, especially also with children, if they are raised like this, have uh, awareness, um, also often educate their parents and the like, um, then it can also have ripple effects in the broader areas of society, like uh, industri industrial water use or also agricultural water use. On the, on the latter, on the agricultural dimension, I personally think that um, one should take numbers into account, but it's not as easy as this. If agriculture just contributes, it's the same here in Germany, 2% or less to the overall GDP of a country, there might be some signal into this number, and yet it is still an important and um, a difficult change process needed to have uh, a more water-saving practice in a, a sector that plays a vital and most important role in a country such as agriculture. And then the question starts, how can we indeed have a transformation process, uh, identify first the low-hanging fruits, the no-regret strategies, and if they are all gone, what could be done to push, uh, for example, a water-intensive and not very productive system towards maybe a less intensive and a much more productive system. And then I think the only way what we call structural changes in such a sector is to bring the users, the agriculture side, uh, into a negotiating scheme, maybe step by step going from bargaining to a joint understanding and then look for a common solution and to identify first uh, the potential to save water but also the necessities to really come to such change where regulation can help but where also other incentives have to be provided to install trip irrigation schemes, change um, uh, the crops uh, in a way uh, that farmers don't have to go out of business or I don't want to be naive here and it would be not good for the subject matter if some issue areas or some specific region should go out that people 
or ex ante beforehand uh, uh, get a perspective on their future and what an alternative income source could be. And I also want to add, I'm not naive about the lobbying, uh, but to turn lobbies that are providing, let's say, particular interests, specific interest group perspective, this is an important source of insights, to use this, put it on the table in a transparent manner, then already lobby becomes knowledge and then to see if some common ground can be found. And if we cannot overcome a hurdle, a burn, or a, uh, a deadlock, what have you, and then maybe some additional efforts by government, but also pressure, bottom-up pressure by people, can help to shift uh, uh, what's academically called a social technological system like industrial agriculture to a next stage. I'm 100% convinced that in an area like California, <clears throat> there are, it's a matter of very few decades uh, uh, and for sure not the full 25th century where changes must happen if one doesn't want to have a collapse and first of all a collapse of uh, an industrial sector and maybe also collapses for some parts of the society that uh, environmental conditions are simply too harsh to maintain a way of life as it's currently and if we don't start changing the system, changing the way of life, changing the incentive schemes uh, step by step and in let's call it a design manner um, to, or the circumstances will have an abrupt change and this is certainly not recommendable. And that sort of is the adaptation uh, take on climate change that we're already moving into that phase where in some ways it might just simply be too late to avoid some consequences. They're here already so we just have to learn mm -hmm. societally how to how to adapt to those changes. What about technological solutions such as desalination? Uh, what is the current state of affairs in that respect? Um, is it becoming realistic in some regions such as Australia, the American Southwest, maybe even the Middle East, um, to implement this at the practical level? Um, and if so, what? Uh, why is this not done? What are some problems standing in the way of, mm -hmm. of that project? Well, I'm not an, uh, the expert in desalinization technology and policy, but uh, I have some knowledge, this as a disclaimer. Um, um, there are several challenges here. Um, the first one is, of course, that it is something that nature doesn't provide as such, so we have to intervene. It's an engineering solution, and as... Uh, it's rather well known uh, to desalinate water that's a huge amount of energy is needed and this has two components many components i would like to focus on two components uh, if you take uh, the climate dimension um, then you would add a massive amount of additional emissions to the atmosphere if one applied uh, desalinization at a larger scale and this is for me in the working in the field of sustainability a very important factor. But there's another factor as well, and it's the economic factor. And uh, even with cheap oil, if it is there and was there and may be there in the future, which I doubt, but even with cheap amount of fossil uh, sources of fossil fuels, it is still a big cost factor to use desalinization at the scale 
that is um, <clears throat> uh, relevant. Mm. So these are, I would say, the two blocking factors with the economic factor being de facto the much more important one. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I come back to this uh, basic knowledge that water is life, no life, no, uh, no water, no life. Um, if you are in a region where you cannot sustain uh, living because the lack of water, solutions will have to be found. Um, and some of the solutions cannot be done by resettlements at a large scale. So there are many areas, uh, for example, the Arab Peninsula, where um, there is a massive amount of, of research going on. There are areas where this is applied. I would say one could distinguish if it's applied for drinking water, household water, where basic needs are at risk and where this has to be um, uh, provided. And these are interesting experiments where we can learn how to do it in a smart way, where we can, which is, I would say, the way to go, um, uh, introduce uh, renewable energy <coughs> to run these desalinization plants Given that water shortage is usually in dry, hence hot, hence uh, sun-intensive region, there might be something like a natural link that one can apply renewables. Even in the state, uh, in a country like the US, uh, uh, there's lots of sun, sun available and the costs for these new technologies are not so high anymore. And if uh, a renewables-powered desalinization plant provides this most important service of, of uh, useful water or fresh water, I think there could also be business cases in a future that is not in a historic time horizon of 100 years, but also there we are at uh, a couple of, uh, of decades. Um, I would say engineering is often... A, Difficult and yet the easy way out because it helps to avoid um, changes in, in, in practice, in lifestyle, to simply live on with uh, a huge amount of water, water-intensive lifestyle. There are many questions to this, if this is the right way to go. Um, and uh, a huge question that it's not solved at all, if you desalinate water at a big amount, um, what do you do with all the salt um, that's something for really the smart kids for um, tomorrow and even the day after, that we find ways to use what's currently simply waste, salt, and at this concentration it's basically poison, uh, that this could become income sources, uh, um, uh, productive income sources for future uh, um, whatever, processing, uh, factoring processes. I would say research is there at a very early stage. It has to happen. Um, last point, I'm not so sure if it will be at any time possible to use desalinization for agriculture because there the amount is simply too large. And it's also well known that in dry region, in arid region, if you add and add and add quite big amount of water to these soils and to the land, uh, they are desalinating uh, themselves, they lose their quality. So it is also an again a super smart uh, water irrigation governance uh, uh, management 
engineering scheme necessary that what's perceived as maybe a possible way out that this will not create the problems of, of the future. But before we can apply it at this order of magnitude, there are many, many issues have to be resolved. If it is at a, at the area of somewhat small amount, also for industrial application and so on and so forth. I would say in a world that is heading towards nine billion, possibly more by the mid of the century, it is and responsibility of science and research to to better understand the opportunities, the limits, and also the risk of some technologies like desalinization. Interesting points. Shifting now gears um, a little bit towards water security issues. Um, another problem, both in the USA and China, for example, is not uh, not even so much the quantity of the water, but rather also the quality for drinking purposes. And um, in the United States, for example, here in 2016, uh, after some years of crisis in Flint, Michigan, uh, their water scandals shocked the whole country when local government leaders took various steps just to save money on tap water, so on drinking water. Um, that eventually led to, the, uh, to tens of thousands of people becoming poisoned from lead and other pollutants in the drinking water and the water pipes. Um, eventually, criminal charges were filed against allegedly key responsible parties and uh, litigation is still ongoing, both in the criminal and civil fields. But how do you think uh, we as a society can uh, best avoid problems uh, of that magnitude or that nature in the future? Would that be through regulations and even better oversight? Allegedly, some oversight was lacking of the mm -hmm. local leaders here. Or do you think the market plays a role in this context, for instance, via the privatization of water sources? Um, oh, this is a full basket of, of questions and challenges. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, some some reflection on this. Um, first of all, it is very important to, to turn now to the issue of water quality, because there are these two sides, water quantity and water quality. And... There's the, the classic side of water quality, which goes very directly to the drinking water issue. And I would say there's n no compromise policy has to be applied. Drinking water must be the almost the most safest resource we, we need to have to sustain our living. And uh, so I'm very clear on this. And even though I don't know the concrete case, I think that's also, an if it's an issue of criminal act, uh, then the question of regulation, uh, question of incentives uh, can still be, let's say, um, <clears throat> denied, combated or misused by a criminal act. Um, but I will come back to this as well. So we have the, the, this dimension of water quality for life. Um, the other dimension is, which is Again, unfortunately, often happening from so-called non-point uh, uh, source uh, uh, pollutions like agriculture, when um, water quantity is reduced not by the physical availability of water, but by polluting the water in a way that it cannot be used anymore. So the quality side is also a water security side in a quantitative manner. If we increase water quality at many sources, we also have a greater amount, a greater source of water available. 
And there are some very specific cases, often at a teeny weeny uh, uh, amount of water. If we look at a whole water cycle for a country like the US, as big as it is, and there is the other part of the uh, reduced quality leads directly also to an decrease in the availability of water. If I come to, to um, the lead pipe system and so on, there's unfortunately another very special thing with water. First thing is it, it, it flows, but it only flows downstream and actually the way it wants to go. So if we want to have it at our household, at the tap, uh, convenient, provided uh, in more or less the same uh, um, uh, temperature always at the best possible quality, there is a big network infrastructure required to run this. And there I would say um, um, this is a big challenge uh, for industrialized, uh, if this is an appropriate word here, matured societies that have installed their systems often 100-150 years ago and actually have to continuously rebuild the system, which pays off in the most direct sense because it sustains life of a nation, but it is coming at some costs and then a free market approach, I would say, has big issues of covering these costs. So there are savings, we don't invest enough in our pipe system, in the pumping station, in the water treatment. There again we have the link of water quality, water quantity challenges. And then indeed the problems start. And there I would say regulation is a must. We can use price signals, hence the market, but in order to maintain the quality of these most precious resources that price signals give the signal in the right direction, availability, affordability, quality and the like, it has to be done in a very, very uh, intelligently uh, regulated manner. <clears throat> and um, this is, I would say, a, a big challenge to keep these networks um, up to date, invest constantly in this, and this is unfortunately where we see it, um, where these kind of services have been privatized, often lagging behind. Um, I would say it is a debate, fortunately, that is uh, more or less over privatizing uh, water sources, because those who expected a big benefit from it realized quite quickly that water is not really the source with which you become rich quickly without costs. So I'm sure lots of regulations and steps are being taken about uh, the quality of uh, tap water in the United States. What do you know, though, about the uh, situation in China and uh, drinking water issues in China or elsewhere? Mm -hmm. Well, China, first of all, is, of course, at a very different development stage. Uh, it is uh, rapidly developing, especially in metropolitan and urban areas. But there it's not so much issues to regulate uh, and to redo, reinvest in old pipe system, which have the problem of lead in, in many areas of the world. But there it was a major step 
into a development stage to get uh, a good water supply infrastructure in the first place. So I would say China, especially within the international goals, is very much catching up with um, the provision of uh, drinking water to its people. But China has a massive water quality problem as well. And this goes very much together with, again, this rapid development when industrial processes, agriculture certainly as well, uh, is in a stage, maybe because it's not regulated, maybe because it is a learning issue and certainly because of an issue of costs in such a level of development that uh, much not treated uh, wastewater is pumped back into the natural system. That means in the rivers and the lakes and what's particularly challenges into the aquifer, into groundwaters where uh, polluted water is very uh, difficult to uh, to treat afterwards again. So it is high on the political agenda, to my knowledge. I'm quite often in Shanghai at the Dongxi University. There, I'm also uh, in touch with the with the chair at the university, dealing with several issues of industrial wastewater treatment. And there is where the Chinese have a very long way to go to clean up their water and as it's often said the classic development get rich first and clean up later they are about to enter the cleanup phase and this is a big difficulty and if you have a country like china this order of magnitude at such a very uh, large scale <clears throat> the water quality issue uh, fires back on the quantity side because if the water uh, that is available but is in a very poor uh, quality state. For many purposes, this cannot be used anymore. And so it becomes a cost factor, it becomes a limiting factor for further stages of development. And this is very much what uh, what China, for example, is experiencing and tries to tackle. And this will be tough. It will require new innovation, regulation. It will uh, require... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, quite some time, uh, uh, but if they don't start with it right now, uh, this will be a hindrance for further development in countries like China, but this applies to the Indias of this world, to Indonesia's, um, to large urban areas in what it's called um, developing uh, countries, that these problems are there everywhere. What about, uh, though, using bottled water? Many people, I think, perceive that to be healthier than uh, some of the tap water, but is that necessarily the case? And what about the contributions to climate change from bottling water and driving it around and so forth? Well, if we stay for a second in a country like China and India, where we also have quite good connections to, um, in some areas you indeed don't want to drink the water out of uh, of the tap. Uh, so he, for some direct health reasons, that makes a lot of sense. So you need water for showering and for cleaning and the like, and there it's called, and it should be, and it must be in a way drinking water. But in some areas, the bottled water is uh, the way to go. And if you like, this is a direct way of an adaptation and maybe that's maladaptation, it's uh, something that helps for today but cannot continue for um, <clears throat> much longer because it contributes to the future problems, as you basically also said. Um, but with uh, 
tap water and bottled water, that's indeed an interesting um, connection. I would personally say, being a water person very much, the state of water quality is a very good indicator of um, the level of development of a country itself. Because there are not too many countries where you can easily and um, that you don't feel it um, physically drink water out from the tap because <clears throat> this is an, uh, a good sign of a high level of, of uh, development status and in many many countries of the world regulation on drinking water are among the toughest regulations in fact the water that runs out of these pipes in countries for example like Germany is often much cleaner or the higher quality than bottled water for example because if you bottle a water and then you use it a year two years sometimes three years later and the like this is basically no fresh water anymore so there we have let's say an, an uh, situation where bottled water is in if you like the way to go then we have a situation where the pipes exist and it could be used and certainly for many areas and for many purposes like hygiene issues it has to be used but then if a, if a country is very well established well development and takes much care of this investments it needs to have this basic service like clean drinking water provision um, you should indeed consider switching to drinking tapped water because it is more healthy and of course uh, bottled water includes a lot of emissions uh, not so much from uh, pumping the water as such but from bottling it and then carrying it sometimes our water comes from Italy I assume the same applies in the US and this is basically um, somewhat bizarre marketing dimension to it and uh, <clears throat> one could reconsider this these are the very easy and first steps to go where everybody could make a concrete contributions um, for transitions towards a more sustainable world or at least have uh, in offices water filtering systems and so forth as we do here at the IASS instead of having the water shipped in uh, from companies. Um, nonetheless, the companies though seem to have been able to really market their products very well, at least in the United States, you know, PepsiCo and the bigger uh, soft drink uh, producers also sell a lot of water. So that goes back to what we talked about before, how, you know, that there might be a market uh, issue in this. In other words, the companies seem to be able to market their products such that people truly believe that it's a healthier product than what it actually is. So how do you get the public more informed about that not being the case? Well, as you said, the first uh, point would be indeed to, to raise awareness or to make knowledge available. And as we are free societies, uh, nobody is forced to, uh, let's say, not to use uh, bottled water. People can do, but many often do it on imperfect information and sometimes uh, uh, the facts are simply wrong such as uh, that um, piped water, uh, uh, tap water in many areas, uh, be it at the country level or be it at the level of federal states, 
are under such high regulation uh, that uh, it is in the end even more healthy. And then there are many other aspects to it like uh, the emissions uh, that come with uh, the shipping or with the cargo of, of these kinds of water. It is a price issue. Why should you pay, I don't know, uh, uh, a thousand times the price of a glass of water that comes out of your tap anyways. I mean, there are many areas and many reasons. And in some restaurants, of course, it is rather unusual, but it can also be done to, to order um, tapped water. So they are thing to take what often is called an informed decision leads to different decisions in the future. At least one should be critical about what's meant to be a default, that is the bottled water. And if people believe that it is also per se the more healthy bit, that's for sure not always the case. But what was said earlier, especially with the, with the issue of the lead pipes, it indeed takes uh, uh, a fair amount of high quality management maintenance investments where the very very top of of this whole service provision by by the water utilities the perfect drinking water quality for real drinking is but water is used uh, for so many different reasons um, where the quality has to be at drinking water level and it is a constant struggle to maintain the importance of this most important sector and uh, well to reinvest into functioning systems at costs that are bearable but where also people are aware what they pay their money for because with clean water they get the most important service uh, nature and then of course processed uh, humankind can provide yes great so it sounds like there's quite a few water issues to be solved around the world still, both in relation to water quantity, but also water quality. We'll hope that that gets addressed in better ways than what we've seen recently. Dr. Schmidt, thank you very much. Thank you. It was my great pleasure. You've been listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. My name is Mayanna Dellinger, and I just interviewed Dr. Falk Schmidt of the Institute of Advanced Sustainability Studies on his views on water supply and purity as it regards to climate change and water management in general. Follow us on iTunes or Podbean.